Thank you, Gary and Emily. It's uh, quite a song to have sung right before I preach. Uh, On the one hand, this is God's word that I'm wanting to share with you. On the other hand, what great confidence that it is God who will take his word and use it uh, beyond my abilities and beyond your abilities to to hear it and understand that the Holy Spirit is here to work through both those those means. So trust that uh, God will be doing that in all of us right now. So turn with me, if you would, please, to John chapter 3. And we're continuing in this section that, if you remember, begins with a man named Nicodemus, a, uh, a man who was a Pharisee. He was a member of the highest religious court in Israel, the Sanhedrin. Uh, he was a man of standing and of, was respected and honored, a man of authority in Israel. Um, from a, a human perspective, he was, he was at the height of all that he could be in a religious nation like Israel. And remember, he comes to Jesus, makes a declaration at the beginning of the chapter, and says, we know... We know, Rabbi, that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Somewhat confident in that declaration because he's saying, this is what we know about you. And again, as I mentioned before, maybe someone else might have said, oh, well, thank you for your endorsement. Thank you for recognizing that about me. And Jesus turns the whole situation around on him and says, Nicodemus, Unless you start completely over, unless you are born new, you can't see the kingdom of God. And he he just takes Nicodemus back to his own need. You have to start fresh. You have to be born from above. You have to be washed. You have to have a spiritual birth. You need to start over, Nicodemus. I remember his shock. A couple of things he says is, How can a man be born when he is old? He took away all of his possibilities. And Nicodemus says, how how can I start over now? I've invested so much in all of these good works and all of the law that I've followed and all of those things. And and you're telling me I have to start over? When Jesus explains further, he says, how can these things be? Remember, Jesus points him to, you're going to have to just look in faith, just like the people did in the wilderness, when they were bit by the snakes, right? They rebelled against God. He sent poisonous snakes among them. And the only thing that could save them is they had to quit looking at the snakes and look at the snake up on the pole that Moses had made and trust God. Trust God that he would save them. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, that's just what you have to do with me. Yes, Jesus, this 30-year-old man, talking to this old, revered teacher. Jesus calls him the teacher of Israel. Now, even you, Nicodemus, you're going to have to put your trust in the one that God has sent. And and that's kind of the the quick trip to verse 16 that we're so familiar with, right? As he explains, here's, here's what God is up to. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus here's speaking of himself, right? that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Nicodemus, 
you have to have the gift of eternal life. All of your good things you did, all of your vast learning, all of the authority that's been given to you by the people of Israel, unless you believe in the one that God sent his son, you will perish. You will, all that you are will become of no good and eternally. If you want to live forever, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you're going to have to put your trust in me. What a shocking thing that must have been to hear this from this 30-year-old young man. Here is what you have to do, Nicodemus. That's where we left off a couple of weeks ago before our round of breakfast last week. And and now we're going to continue on. And and some people think that, actually beginning at verse 16, it could be that John is taking over and explaining more fully than the things that Jesus said to Nicodemus. It's hard to say um, just by the flow of it. Um, I'm going to just continue on. This This is words from Jesus. Whether he spoke them directly to Nicodemus or he gave them to us through John, We're learning from Jesus here. So we'll proceed on that basis regardless of who actually uttered them. God preserved them for us and inspired them through John. And the explanation takes us further and deeper into really who we are and who Jesus is. And so we're coming off on verse 17 where we're at this morning from him twice saying that whoever believes in him shall have eternal life. Whoever believes in him shall have everlasting life. Here's an emphasis. When God repeats stuff, you better pay attention, right? But it's whoever, and it's putting your trust in an ongoing way in him. So follow along, if you would, as I read verses 17 through 21. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. So the explanation begins by, by first of all, talking about how Jesus got here. He's already talked about that he came down from heaven, which was another kind of shocking thing for Nicodemus, I think. But he does state, first of all, for God did not send the Son into the world. First of all, there's some great information. God sent the Son into the world. It's extremely important. God gave him that all who believe might be saved, right? God sent him. The Father and the Son are in complete agreement about this mission. And I think one of the things that often people, the mistake people make is they look at the God of the Old Testament and oftentimes you see God sending Israel to destroy uh, nations that are in rebellion against him. Uh, God judges 
you know, the Israelite people at different times with some very, fairly severe punishments. And we get that wrapped up in our brain, and we think, boy, the God, God of the Old Testament, he was pretty harsh. But Jesus, Jesus is, is really, he's, he's nicer and kinder. God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit are in this operation completely together. It was the Father who sent Jesus, the Son, into the world on this rescue mission. His heart of love, according to verse 16, is what motivated all of this. And so understand that the Father and the Son are in complete unity about what's going on here. They both have such love for people, for humanity. And Jesus will repeat over and over. This is, this is important to mark this. Because again and again in the Gospel of John, Jesus said, talks about the Father having sent him. The Father having sent him. This is all about what the Father has sent him to do. And he, he turns it all back. He says, I have authority, not because I myself, only because I myself am God, but because I have submitted myself to, to the Father, and he has sent me with his authority to carry this out. But you might say, well, why, why did you come then? Well, first he clarifies a question about why he didn't come. The Son did not come to judge the world. And that might be what some people would have thought. Um, he didn't come primarily to make declarations of judgments, declarations of condemnation. And that was a common idea that the Jewish people had, that the Messiah was going to come. And when he came, he would judge and he would condemn the Gentile world. And he would redeem Israel out of all of the bad things that the Gentiles had done to them. Jesus says, no, I'm not here to bring condemnation and judgment. But it does concern the world, Nicodemus. It does concern the world, Jewish people who hear this and read this. It's not just about Israel. Israel is God's chosen nation, used especially to bring the Messiah and to put a spotlight on God and his holiness. But God has always had a love for the entire world. His purpose has always been to bring salvation for people of every nation, every language, every place. When you think about that idea of world, remember that we, we talked about this before, that the, the idea of world can refer to the planet that God made, right? The earth. It can mean the system that rules the planet, which... It almost always is used when it's used that way in a negative sense. You know, do not love this world, this system that is in rebellion against God. Do not love what has really been taken over, usurped by Satan. And then human beings have been manipulated by him to, to run an evil system in the world. That's, that's another way of, of looking at this word world. But it can be like verse 16, God so loved the world. God's love isn't toward inanimate objects in that sense, that agape love that we, we've learned, we learned so much about in the New Testament. It's not to this evil system, certainly. But eventually, he's going to make that evil system cease and go away. But it's about the people that make up this whole world who are under that evil system. God loved 
that Jesus' mission wasn't to come and bring condemnation, but to, but to bring salvation. And understand, it's not because he, he lacks the authority to judge. He is the Son of God. He was sent by the Father as the Father's representative. So he therefore has all the authority necessary to bring judgment. He can judge, and one day he will judge. Remember that he, he is the Son of Man. That's one of his favorite ways of referring to himself. And you go back to Daniel chapter 7. We've done that a couple of times not too long ago. And Son of Man is the one who is going to come, who is going to have a kingdom on this earth that will never pass away. He will be the judge and the ruler of all that. So it's not that Jesus didn't have the authority behind him to bring judgment, but that wasn't his purpose. One day when he sets up his kingdom, he will judge. And he will bring judgment upon those who rebel against him. And it's not that Jesus doesn't make distinctions about people. He does. He sees people's sin. He sees where they are wrong. He sees where they have judgment coming on them. The point is that his main purpose in coming was not to bring that condemnation, but that says, it says here, the world through him might be saved. That was his primary objective. Bring salvation to those people that God loves so much. Now understand, that doesn't mean that every individual will be saved. Because remember, just in, in verse 16, what's the prerequisite to having eternal life? Whosoever believes in him. It's available for all in the world, for whoever. And one day the whole place, the whole system will be his and redeemed and be perfect. So there is a sense in which he, he will save the whole world after those who have rejected him are judged. But Jesus' first coming happened so that he could be the means by which people could be saved out from under their own condemnation. Verse 18 takes us into that idea of, of judgment. What, what is this judgment that's talked about here? It says, for he who believes in him is not judged. And so it starts off with the good news, right? Judgment averted. Judgment escaped. It's so the same truth that we saw in verse 15 and verse 16. It's just stated in a, in a negative way. He who believes is not judged. So those verses state that the believing in the Son brings eternal life. This one states that the one who becomes a believer is not in the category of being judged or condemned anymore. You were under, you were under that judgment, but when you believed, when you became one who, who believes in Jesus and trusts yourself to him, you come out from under that category. You come into the ones who are not perishing, and you're placed into the category of those who have life that goes on forever. The thing is that we've got those two, two truths go hand in hand, right? What's two different sides of the, of the same coin. But rejoice if you have believed in Jesus, that you are no longer under condemnation. The judgment is not, no longer hanging over your head. But you can have a life that goes on, full of glory in serving Jesus. 
what's the, what's the basis for the judgment? He goes on and says, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. See, the thing is, Jesus didn't come to judge because he didn't need to judge. The judgment that's on mankind has been obvious really since the fall. Remember what, what Jesus told Adam and Eve even, if you eat of the fruit, you will what? Surely die. Mankind has been under judgment. It's been obvious that we deserve judgment since Adam and Eve took that, those first bites from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we could spend a great deal of time this morning just showing from both the Old Testament and the New Testament that, that all people are under judgment. All of humanity is under judgment. But let's just go to one passage for now. Go with me to Psalm 53, uh, verses 1 through 3. Uh, this is an Old Testament passage, so understand that uh, these truths span both testaments, both uh, books of God's truth given to us. But here, from the mouth of King David, it makes it very clear that every single person is already under judgment. Jesus didn't need to come to, make, to, to tell us that. It says, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt and have committed abominable injustice. There is no one who does good. God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of man to see if there is anyone who understands, who seeks after God. Every one of them has turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. So, Really what it's getting at here is that we as human beings, as humanity, turned our, our back on our maker, beginning with Adam and Eve, and turned his beautiful, good creation into a cesspool of sin. So from the perspective of, of what this world looks like from a perspective of sin, it's, it's everywhere. We can, we can see all the beautiful plants and animals and all that still, but what if you could look and, and sin was all just made obvious by blackness. What would this world look like? It would be pretty ugly. See, Jesus didn't come to make that clear. It's been unavoidably obvious for many centuries. But what, when Jesus did come, it all became very clear. As he continues on in verse 18, it says, He who does not believe does not believe, has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So we've got a very easy test, whether you're judged or you have eternal life. Right? It's no longer a matter of, here are, here, are, here are lists of laws that God has given you. Have you broken any of those? You know, God gave Israel that, that, those laws, right? Oh, here, here's something to judge by, and we, we found out we couldn't keep them, right? But he, he simplifies it. Are you under judgment? Well, those who have not believed in Christ are under judgment. That's how simple it is. If you have not believed, you're still judged. That, that, that's all of our condition to start with, right? If you believe in him, you're transferred out of there over to here. Those who don't believe remain in the condition of being judged and then they're therefore condemned or perishing, as verse 
16 says. What do you believe in? Well, it's not just in Jesus, but in the name it says, of the only begotten Son of God. Notice it's in the name of, and it's emphasized here. As you might already know, this, this word name doesn't just mean you fill that in in the blank and something and you say, I believe in the name of the Son of God. I believe in Jesus. The concept of name has to do with all that a person is, all that a person has done, all that a person stands for. And so when you say you believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God, it's not just this nebulous Jesus idea, but it has to do with his deity that he is, in fact, God. It has to do with the fact that he was sent from God. It has to do with the fact that he came to bear the sins of the world, and so on. Here it specifically mentions it has to do with him being the only, the unique son of God, therefore sent by him as God with his authority. It has to do with where he came from and what he accomplished on the cross. So, so when it says this, understand that believing on the name of the only begotten Son of God does not mean believing in the Jesus who we're told about in the Quran that the Muslims believe in. That Jesus is not the Son of God. They very adamantly deny that God could have a son. They deny that, that the Jesus in the Quran died on the cross. In fact, they took, say, God, the, God, they call him a prophet, but God removed him from the cross before he died. They take away the whole payment for our sin. This is not the Jesus of Mormonism and what the Book of Mormon and the other writings there tell us about, because that God is not the one and only eternal God, but just one of many gods. He is not the only begotten Son of God, the unique Son of God, but just one of many. And that Jesus, told about in Mormonism, didn't fully pay for our sin. Oh, he establishes a place, but then it's up to us. Not the same Jesus. And this isn't the weak, good teacher Jesus of our culture. Just a man who was a good teacher, who had some good things to say, and it's too bad that he got killed. No, that's not the Jesus, if you put your faith in, that will save you from your sins and get you out from under judgment. Matter of fact, if we're going to take this idea of name and put something on it, it's going to have to be the name Yahweh, the Creator God. You have to believe in Him as the eternal God and as the one who then gave His life for us. So please don't think that just everybody who throws out the name Jesus is out from under condemnation. It has to be the Jesus that we meet in the pages of the Bible. Now the gospel continues on now to help us understand this idea of condemnation and our relationship to Jesus in it. Verse 19, it says, this is the judgment. No, we've talked about judgment. We've talked about condemnation. What's, what's the sentence? What's the verdict here about humanity? This is the judgment, verse 19, that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds 
were evil. So here's the clear declaration of why judgment is on people. Light has come into the world. Uh, John actually already introduced us to this concept at the very first chapter. We remember how much, how rich that first chapter was. Let's just turn back and remind ourselves of, of verses 4 down through 13. He started off by telling us about the Word, right, which is one of the, the name for Jesus. It says, in him, in the Word was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it or did not overpower it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, To them, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. See how John's just bringing these these concepts back around, introduced them with Nicodemus, but here, here we have the light. He says it's come to enlighten everyone. It's available here now in the world for all to see. It also says that 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 light was rejected, right? His light came and showed who we all are in reality. Because he is all that is good. And puts everything into its proper perspective. So we don't have an excuse, do we? When we encounter Jesus, he he just puts it all out on display for us and shows us who we are and what's going on. But the tragic thing in this verse then, he says, but but men loved darkness. That word men means, the Greek word anthropos, so has to do with humanity, not men as opposed to women. But humanity, all of the people who make that up, loved darkness. It came across a kind of a shocking thing to me a little bit in this study is the word loved there is agape. Ever had a preacher make a big deal about the word agape? Like me? It's one of those words that the New Testament and the writers of the New Testament brought into the context of who Jesus is and how God loves us and infused it with amazing meaning. Right? We understand agape love is this, this purposeful love that loves in spite of the one who's loved and what they've done. It's a persistent love that continues on, right? And so we usually think of it as an unconditional love. And, and it, it should really fill our hearts with joy when we think about agape love. But here God says, the, but man or men loved unconditionally the darkness because their deeds were evil. Purposefully loved the darkness because it covered up the things that they did that were wrong and against God. Held on to the darkness, even when the light came and made their lives exposed so they could see they didn't really make sense. 
And it's shocking because verse 16 has just used the word in the exact opposite way, right? For God so loved, agape, the world. Now we're told that people have that same kind of passionate desire for the darkness. Characterized by making a choice to keep following the darkness. Holding on to it, choosing it, even against Jesus' light. Why? Says because their deeds were evil. See, the darkness, at least we think, hides our true nature as sinners. It keeps us from being shown for what we are. It helps us pretend that what we do isn't so bad. We go so far in the darkness sometimes as to even to construe the evil things we do as good, right? Have you ever heard recently in the news or in the media? Sins portrayed as good? I have. Sexual sins portrayed as good. The killing of innocent babies as a good thing. Keep the list going. In the darkness, we can pretend all kinds of things. But our our deeds are evil. And And interesting here, The word that's used for evil isn't just your generic word for evil. There are several words for evil in the Greek. But the particular word that's chosen is uh, maybe a better translation in in English. We don't use very much, but it's pernicious. That means it's not accidental wrong or mistakes, but, but it's harmful, purposeful evil that isn't content to be evil in itself, but it wants to pull others along with it. It's a word that's used to describe Satan as the evil one. It's a little shocking to hear it because Jesus here wants us to know that within us we have all had that kind of evil. and We have loved the darkness because it hides it. We hide it within our own hearts and minds a lot of times. But he doesn't stop here. It goes on, for everyone who does evil hates the light. So that's the other side of it, right? If you love the darkness unconditionally, what's your attitude towards the light? Well, you hate it, right? It comes in and it exposes me for who I am. You ever felt that? Even as a believer, we feel that, don't we? When we've done wrong and somebody walks into the room in the middle of it, we feel that hatred for the light. We love our sin, and we hate to have it exposed. We hate to have it shown. It makes us angry. It makes us resentful. And we often strike out at the light that exposes us. And Jesus told, tells, will tell us then later in John 8, 12, what does he say about himself? I am the light of the world. So this statement says because Jesus comes and exposes our sin, we as humanity hate him. You know, think of that feeling you have when people expose you. Sometimes inadvertently, they just speak the truth and all of a sudden it makes you look bad, doesn't it? Because you've been sinning. But notice, one thing you can't see in in the English too is we have the word evil again. Second time it says evil, it's not the same word. It gives us a different word. Maybe you thought, well, I'm not that kind of evil. I'm not pernicious evil. 
not to use that word in a sentence sometime this week. But I'm not out to hurt and destroy. Well, Jesus deals with us anyway. Because when he gets into verse 20, he says, For everyone who does evil hates the light. The word there for evil just means worthless. One who practices in his life worthless things. When your life is characterized by things that have no real value, guess what? You hate the light. Because the light comes in and shows you're content, though you were made by God, designed by him for his special purposes, made in such a special way, you are willing to just throw your life away on things that don't really matter. Things that either will cause bad but or have no good impact on this world. And we hate the light when it exposes that in us. And so we don't come to the light, it says. We don't come to the light because we don't like to be exposed. And though Jesus offers what is best for us, often the good that he does is avoided because it results in our exposure, our rebuke, and yes, our shame at how we live our lives outside of Christ. Nobody likes that. But understand, having our our sin exposed, even doing what is worthless exposed, is a glorious necessity for what is on the other side. When we see our sins as they truly are, as poison, as rampant decay within us, when the light comes and exposes it, something can be done about it. But it really takes a miracle of God for us to change that attitude, doesn't it? He's got to get in there and maybe shake us up a little bit. Maybe turn our heads so that we say, why have I loved this so much? God has has brought his light and somehow he's opened my eyes so I can see, yes, I believe in the light in Jesus, the one who came and gave that to me. If If you haven't had that turn in your heart, I pray that today he will open your eyes so that you can see and put your trust and faith in him. And you can become a new creation. And you can start a new life that lasts forever. And that Jesus will begin working you in your practice toward not doing worthless things, but doing things that matter for eternity and for the greatest glory. And as believers, I want to challenge you. Remember who you were, who who you used to be. I know that's ugly, but don't forget it because... That will help to inspire us, to encourage us to be sharing the gospel with others. When we see people act irrationally in our world to hide sin and stop the restrictions on their sin, we shouldn't be surprised. Have you watched the world when the light shines on the sin they love? They're enraged. When the Supreme Court said, no, you can't have unlimited a killing of babies. What, re- what response was there for many, many people? There was rage that you would say that. Well, are we surprised at that? We shouldn't be. Because humanity, mankind, hates the light. And we were right there with those people who are enraged. We were saved out of that same exact spot that they are in. 
It's the nature of those who are without Christ, and we once were without him until we believed. So maybe you're getting used to how much things have changed in your life. Praise the Lord. He's at work. That's a great thing. But remember your own heart and what it was like before. Remember the fear of being exposed. Remember hating anyone keeping you from doing what you wanted to do. And don't let your forgetfulness keep you from sharing Jesus with people who are still in that place. Because Jesus the light is still the answer for them that he wants for you. Just don't let it alienate you by the things that they do. Don't let that alienate you and push you away from sharing Jesus. Because Jesus also said in Matthew 5, 14 and 16, you are what? The light of the world. Not that you have the light, but he lives in you and shines out. So you take him with you wherever you go. Some people won't like that. That's okay. Keep it shining. Jesus still came into the world, right? Even though the world rejected him. And he has saved millions, right? Many, many millions. Let's continue in that rule. And then verse 21 is where the great news comes. It says, For he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. And so here's the opposite reaction for an opposite purpose. Instead of hating the light, instead of wanting to get rid of the light, those who have believed in Christ and now see him and know, can know the truth in him practice in an ongoing way the truth that they've received from his word, the truth that we've received from knowing Christ now becomes part of our daily practices, the things we do, how we love, how we trust, how we help, all those different things that happen. This is talking about a transformed person. There's nobody that the light came to and they were like this already. Because of the transforming work of Christ, then we can practice the truth. And then when we believe, having been washed, having been born again, having been given a new heart, having been given the Holy Spirit to live within us, what is our, our, our reaction to the light now? Oh, we come toward the light. We have a, a desire to be in the light. And that does that hurt sometimes? Does it still expose in us residual sin that's still going on? Yeah. But it's good, isn't it? It's good to get rid of that junk. It's good to get rid of that poison. So keep on coming into the light even though it hurts. Because who is the light? It's Jesus. Keep running toward him. It will expose your sin, but there's the other thing that it will shine out. This verse tells us that he who practices the truth comes to light so that his deeds may be manifested or shown out as having been wrought or done in God. So keep on wanting more truth, because as we move forward, it shows a new purpose in coming. That it suddenly becomes obvious, the light shows me I'm a weak person. I was once helpless without hope. But God actually even does things in and through me. And I can't wait for other people to see that. So let me get into the light. Let me get to where Jesus, not to show off me because I don't have anything to show off. But God is pleased to sometimes use my words. 
more and more as I, as I, as I follow after him. God is pleased to, to use me as his means of helping others, of building up others, of encouraging others, right? And as I run into his light, it just becomes more and more obvious, not that I'm anything, but that Jesus is in me, has changed me, and now God is using me. Even with this guy. Can you believe it? We've got an amazing God, don't we? That he can accomplish that. So as we move forward, it's important that we all see that Jesus does in fitting this, this purpose. He came to make a difference in sinners. He came that sinners could be saved and become those who have a hunger for him and this new life and purpose and change in the world, right? An almighty God works in those who are saved. So, so wherever you are this morning, maybe you're still hating the light. I urge you, ask God to change your perspective on that so that you can have real life. Maybe you're fairly new at knowing Jesus. Push into him, into knowing him and his truth so that he will show himself strong in you. Maybe you've been walking with Jesus for a long time. Praise the Lord. I think you can, should be able to look back and say, well, look at what he has done. Look at how he has made me different from when I first came to know him. But keep on pressing into him because he's not done. He's still got a lot to do. And don't forget what you were like. And reach out to others who are like you used to be. They need the light. And Jesus said, you are the light of the world. He uses you to shine that out now. Keep it, keep it shining. Take it to the dark places. Go where it's needed. Let's pray. Father, we've gained a little bit of insight this morning, I, I trust. There's so much more to know and learn from your word. Thank you for giving it to us. Thank you for helping us to, to, to be able to see the light without shrinking back. In fact, turning and learning to love the light that is Jesus. Help us to love it more, to run more fully into it by your power, by your grace. We look forward, Lord, to the things that you will do in us and in others in the days ahead because of that. Uh, you are so good. We praise you in Jesus' name.